Welcome back to Psychiatry XR, where we aim to inspire worldwide conversations around the use of extended reality in psychiatric care. I'm your host for the episode, Kim Bullock, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Faiza Arshad and Jessica Hagen. We are so, so happy to have one of my idols, Dr. Mel Slater, as our guest on this podcast today. Dr. Slater is a distinguished investigator at the University of Barcelona and co-director of the Events Lab in the Faculty of Psychology. He was professor of virtual environments at University College London from 1997 to 2018 in the Department of Computer Science. In 2005, he was awarded the Virtual Reality Career Award by the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers, the IEEE, Virtual Reality, in recognition of the seminal achievements in engineering virtual reality, and is a member of the IEEE Virtual Reality Academy. He is field editor for Frontiers in Robotics and AI and chief editor of the Virtual Environment section. He received the A.V. Humboldt J.C. Mutis Research Award in 2020, and he's also co-founder of Virtual Body Works, one of the most intriguing companies that I've come across in XR space. So Dr. Slater, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. I am very intrigued by your unique career, as I'm sure listeners are. And I became a diehard fan of yours because of your discoveries around the possibilities of changing implicit biases through embodied XR experiences. And especially by your seminal journal article in 2015 called Conversations Between Self and Self as Sigmund Freud, a Virtual Body Ownership Paradigm for Self-Counseling. And I've always wondered how you would describe yourself and your career identity and your trajectory. Are you still a computer scientist at heart or do you see yourself within other disciplines like social science and psychology and neuroscience? Or do you not identify as any of these labels? I just wonder about your career and how you see yourself fitting in these different disciplines. Well, I've had a kind of diverse career and it all made sense when I started being involved in virtual reality. So my first degree was actually in statistics, mathematical statistics, but I learned a lot about experimental design, social sciences, and so on. Then I spent some time explicitly in social science studying sociology, Then I moved back to statistics. And then I joined a department of computer science and statistics on the faculty at University of London, And gradually through that, I moved away from statistics into computer graphics, and computer graphics led me to virtual reality. And when I got involved in virtual reality, I then understood why I had studied experimental design and a bit of psychology and sociology and so on. It all came together and made sense because though by that time I was concentrating more on computer science, I had the background to be able to design experiments, analyze data and so on. I'm a mix of computer science. In my lab, we carry out work on the technical side of virtual reality, but usually the end goal is to study some phenomena in psychology or cognitive neuroscience. That's usually the end goal of, of our work. Got it. Okay. Wow. Didn't it sound like you would have never guessed starting in statistics, you'd end up where you are 
Do you have any advice for people in careers? Is it just a wayfaring, just go for what's interesting to you? Or how did that path unfold? Did you just do the next logical thing? Or did you do the thing that inspired you? Or how did you do this wayfaring? Lots of it was accidental. I was mostly interested in mathematics and statistics, which is why I did my first degree in that. And then during the first degree, I became interested in applications in the social sciences. So it's why I then went to do a master's in sociology. And then I was thinking, well, sociology is great, but what am I going to really do with it? So I went back to statistics. But then that's how I ended up in a department. In those days, actually, I don't know if it was the same in the United States, but often computer science and statistics were together, mainly because the statisticians used a lot of computing resources. And so I ended up in the computer science and statistics department. Mm -hmm. But then one day somebody else said to me, "Um, we're doing this whole program of statistics and we want a computer program for statistics for people to use. Would you like to do the computer graphics part? And that's how I got involved in that. And then from there, it was a natural progression to virtual reality. And then the virtual reality is kind of multidimensional. It's computer science, it's experimental design, it's psychology. It's kind of everything that I'd studied rolled into one. Yeah. So I I never planned any of this. It just kind of happened. Yeah, I hear that a lot. So kind of accidental opportunities that are in front of you and that's where you are at the right time. Wow. Okay. Well, since this is trying to focus on psychiatric applications of XR, I'm wondering how you see your career and work fitting with the development of clinical XR, if you do see it fitting in there, and treating behavioral and mental health issues. So as a psychiatrist doing mostly psychotherapy myself, I I feel really intrigued by embodied perceptual illusions that have potential use in psychotherapy. And so much of work's with patients, uh, for us psychiatrists and psychologists and mental health providers is employing traditional techniques that require a lot of explicit learning and intention and effort on the client's parts. But we're always trying to do implicit kinds of learning on the fly in the relationship or having people do homework in between sessions and have experiences. But these embodied experiences have the potential to allow a passive intervention that does actually allow this implicit learning with the consent of patients, of course. And do you see your work having clinical practice or any application to severe mental illness? Yes. So back in the 1990s, myself and other people, of course, recognized that virtual reality could be a very good tool for psychological therapy. And kind of some of the early applications were things like fear of heights, fear of flying, this kind of thing. And it has logistic advantages in the sense that if you imagine someone has a fear of public speaking, so the therapist would do like behavioral therapy with exposure therapy. They come in, they do a session, they have to go out into the real world and do some practicing and come back the next week and so on. And I and others realized, well, of course, you could do all that in the office. There's no real need because I'd studied a lot presence, the illusion of being in the virtual, being in the place depicted by the virtual reality and responding to it as real. If you respond to it as real, then you'll have similar anxiety in virtual reality to a virtual audience as you do to a real audience. But the very interesting thing is somebody with a real phobia of public speaking 
you couldn't drag them with wild horses to go and speak in front of an audience, but they will speak in front of a virtual audience and ne nevertheless get sufficient anxiety. So in the 1990s, late 1990s, we started doing some studies relating to fear of public speaking, not therapy, but simply examining how people respond to virtual audiences. And we did, I think, three experiments where um, people had to give a talk in front of like a small seminar room. Like in one of the studies, one audience was very negative, one was very positive, another audience was very neutral. And we were quite amazed to find that even experienced speakers, they found it really hard to talk to the negative audience. And by negative, I mean really negative. They never looked at the speaker, never looked at you. They were kind of sitting with their hand on the head, reading a newspaper, walking out in the middle of the talk, this kind of thing. And experienced speakers found that really hard to deal with, even though they know they're just looking at some pixels on the screen. So it's a really powerful demonstration of the power of virtual reality in that regard. Then in the early 2000s, I met Professor Daniel Freeman. At that time, he was the Institute of Psychiatry in London. And now he's at Oxford, again, in clinical psychology. And we started working together on paranoia because we'd also noticed that when you're in virtual reality and you interact with a virtual human character, People make up all kinds of stories about what's going on. They'll say things to you like, well, I was in there and this character over here, he never looked at me. He really didn't like me. And all this was in their heads. Nothing was real about it. I mean, not only wasn't real because it's pixels on a screen, but also there was nothing programmed to not make them look at them. It was just in their imagination. And then I was telling this in UCL, the University College London, to a professor of psychiatry. And he said, yeah, this would be very good to study paranoia. And so Daniel Freeman and I took that up and we started doing studies. Do people get paranoid in virtual reality to the same level that they're paranoid in real life? Hmm. And the answer was yes, again and again, whenever we did it. And then Daniel did a big study in the local area where he was with 200 people from the local town. And he found that their degree of paranoia in the virtual reality was correlated with their paranoia measured before they ever went into the environment. So the more they had a tendency to paranoia in real life, the more they got paranoid uh, in virtual reality. And now mm -hmm. that has moved into cognitive behavioral therapy, not to cure paranoia, but to allow people to function in the world. There's basically an exposure therapy where they learn that they can go out safely, go to a cafe and order a drink and this kind of thing learn to do that in virtual reality, and then it maps over into real-life behavior. So, yeah, I've always been interested in um, the applications of virtual reality to clinical psychology. So then my real interest in virtual reality is that, yes, you can do things to simulate reality. So if someone has a fear of heights, you can put them on a height. If someone has a fear of public speaking, you can put them in front of an audience. But my interest in virtual reality generally is always to go beyond, not just use it as a simulation of reality, which is important in many applications, especially in training, but to go beyond what's possible in reality and use it to positive advantage in that. And this is where, I don't know how, but just one day I just came up with this idea of a self-conversation. I was doing some reading and I saw like, for example, in the United Kingdom, 
there's a long, long waiting time for people to get talking therapy, a long time. And also during that time, people can get worse. And uh, so I was thinking, is there some kind of way that people could start some level of therapy without waiting for the actual appointment with the clinician, but also something that would also help the clinician as well? So I came up with this idea and we were, I was working on this idea of embodiment. Embodiment means that when you're in virtual reality, we can program it so you have a virtual body that visually substitutes your own. So when you look down at yourself in virtual reality, you don't see your real body, but you see a virtual body that's life-size, that moves the same as you do. And uh, you can also show reflections of it in a mirror. So for other reasons, we were doing work on embodiment. And then I had this idea that suppose you could talk to a famous therapist about your personal problem and you explain your problem to the therapist, then in the next phase, you are yourself embodied as the therapist and you see and hear yourself explaining the problem because we could also do a scan of people and make a virtual body that really looked like them. I'll tell you why Sigmund Freud in a minute. It wouldn't have been my choice, but it worked out to be. So I'm talking to Sigmund Freud. I explain a problem like my boss is treating me badly and it's making me feel really bad or my partner's gone away and I feel really lonely. And then I am Sigmund Freud and I see and hear myself explain this problem. Now, one of the things we found in our research about embodiment is that the type of body you have influences attitudes, behaviors, uh, cognition and so on. So now embodied as I look in the mirror, I move close to the mirror and I see not my body, but Sigmund Freud's body. I look down and I see Sigmund Freud's body and across is me sitting, telling me a problem. And also there is something well known in psychology called the Solomon paradox, that people are much better explaining a problem, solving a problem for a friend than they are to themselves. So when you have your own problem, you're stuck in your normal ways of thinking about it and you can't get out of that. When a friend comes to you with a problem, you can often immediately see ways around it that they can't see because they're stuck in their normal way of thinking. So in this body swapping idea, when I am embodied as Sigmund Freud, me, myself on the other side of the table is now the friend. So it's like the friend is explaining a problem to me. And now from my different perspective, and being embodied as Sigmund Freud, I might be able to come up with ideas that in my normal body I can't come up with because I just can't think outside the box. So that way I explain as Freud, I explain the problem. And then as myself, I see and hear Freud give a response to me in a disguised voice so it doesn't sound like me anymore. And that way I can keep switching back and forth between myself and Freud, maintaining a conversation for however long I want. Why Freud? We wanted to choose, because it was an experimental study, we wanted to choose someone where everyone would know without kind of a second thought. So we, beforehand, we did a survey amongst the population from which we would draw a sample with the question, who would you like to explain a personal problem to? And number two was Angelina Jolie, and number one was Freud. So we chose Freud. So this is what I mean by going outside of just simulation of reality. Using virtual reality is something it's really good for, which is something you can't do in reality. I mean, it's a bit like the empty chair technique from Gestalt therapy, where you imagine someone sitting in a chair, then you go and sit and you explain a problem to them, or you have an argument with them, then you go and sit in the chair. But there you have to use your imaginal capabilities. Not everyone can do that here. 
you really see someone else and you really are in that someone else's body and you see yourself. So we did that experiment and we did another experiment uh, a few years later. And now there are three studies going on, one on helping people with obesity, one on helping people who are addicted to smoking, and another one on kind of general personal problems, including non-clinical depression. So um, we're kind of still working on this paradigm and trying to apply it to other areas. What type of response have you heard from participants who have experienced that conversational therapy? Well, it, it, it was very positive. So in the first study, we were interested in, does it matter if you have body ownership over Freud? And does it matter if it's Freud compared with someone else? We already knew this in advance. Just by talking about your problem, everyone improves. Just by talking about it doesn't matter really what the context is. So what we wanted to know is if you talk specifically to Freud compared with someone else, does that make a difference? And secondly, when you are embodied as Freud, does it matter if you have the body ownership over the Freud body or not? And we found that in both of those cases, yes, it helps that you talk to Freud. And second, it helps if you have the feeling of body ownership over the Freud body. Then in a later study, we wanted to know does this body swap even matter? Is it enough just to talk to a simulated Freud who just answers you with canned answers? And again, we found that the body swapping really matters. Again, everyone improves, but they improve more with relation to their personal problem if they actually do the body swapping with Freud rather than just talking to an animated Freud. So I'm waiting for results of the more recent study. I mean, there's still ongoing. So I don't know more than that yet. But when we interview people afterwards, the results were always, always positive. Do you see any connections between this ability to change viewpoints, kind of the egocentric to the allocentric viewpoint as possibly related to theory of mind and neurodiversity issues? Because it does seem that some people may have deficits or strengths and weaknesses and then ability to take perspective taking and that maybe this could be sort of a prosthetic for those people that maybe don't have that ability or it can strengthen that in any or yeah any relations to theory of mind and neurodiversity issues yes i, I think you know it's like the work we're doing on obesity this is with a hospital you know we're not directly dealing with patients ourselves we're providing the software and the design and so on but so the first point, why do we think it's useful to do this in virtual reality? It's because when we look in the mirror, we see what we expect to see. But when you see yourself in full 3D and you can walk around yourself and see your body, it's really quite different. And years and years ago, when I was at university college, we did a kind of informal pilot with a doctor who was treating people with obesity. And all we did is we put them in the virtual reality with a scan of their actual body. So it was an accurate scan of their body. And many of them were shocked. They say they'd never seen this before. They didn't know that they looked like that. Um, they, they never realized how their body looks because one of the things with obesity is simply people who have obesity recognizing the fact of how their body is, not their expectation of what it is when they see themselves in the mirror. So what they do in the hospital is they give people training for two days before the virtual reality experience. 
And the training is on a method of motivational interviewing. So they give them training on motivational interviewing beforehand. So by the time they get into the virtual reality, they already kind of have some experience about how to interview someone. And of course, the interesting thing is they're interviewing themselves. So I think that this kind of different embodied perspective taking could be useful, not just in the context of clinical work, but showing people there is another point of view and that from a different embodied perspective, you can just realize things that you can't realize when you're in your normal way of thinking. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that's the interesting idea. One thing that I'm curious to know is what you see as the long term health benefits, whether that be behaviorally or, or with their mindset, because you're facilitating that body swapping and their ability to have dialogue and also to problem solve. Yes. Yes. So so we don't know yet, but the study in the hospital will address this issue because there will be a a longer term follow up. It's essential, obviously, in a study like that with actual patients. So in the studies we did, of course, one of the problems in running a study in a psychology department in a university is it's very difficult to do long term follow up unless you've also got a lot of resource that you can maintain the connections with people over time. And we never have enough resource, but the study in the hospital is well-funded and I'm hoping we get some good results from that on the long-term effects. So, of course, this is a vital issue. So in other studies, we kind of follow up a week later, which isn't very long. Like actually, in the last study that was published, we didn't ask people questions immediately after the virtual reality mm-hmm. exposure. We asked them one week later yeah. and uh, they still had a very positive change. Whether one week and one day, I don't know, but at least one week. I think that's really fascinating because if you can sort of use this as a way to give subjects homework or, you know, an idea of how they can practice it at home, then it potentially can affect their long-term ability to have just those dialogues with themselves without maybe needing virtual reality. Although, of course, virtual reality is, is a great way to facilitate that. Yes, it actually is what I was saying in the beginning. I never came back to it, which was that one of the ideas of this would be for people to use it under some kind of guidance in between actual sessions, but also before the sessions start. And of course, everything can be recorded, everything, the movements of the person, their voice, the questions. And so this could be of interesting to clinicians who before they meet the patient can play back some of the things that the patient was talking about with themselves. That's one of the advantages of doing this kind of thing in virtual reality is that if you want, it's never lost. The dialogues Mm -hmm. can be kept forever. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that's an important point. What are you most excited about that you're working on or in in the realm of XR? Yes. So um, I'm very interested to carry on this uh, paradigm of the body swapping because a lot of our fundamental research has been to do with embodiment and its effects Mm -hmm. and I'm particularly interested in using it for helping behavior so we did a study in a United States police department where we addressed the problem of racial violence of police against African Americans we actually did this study in the police department which was really interesting And we used an embodiment paradigm to do that. And I'm very interested. We also did here in Barcelona, the same paradigm for sexual harassment of men against women. And both of these examples of this paradigm, the embodiment paradigm worked. 
So I'd like to kind of expand that and go to different areas of application. But basically, it's a way to improve helping behavior. Compassion training and theory of mind um, ideas come into this. Yeah. Yeah, sure. The paradigm is, so take the police example. So in the virtual reality, you're told by your sergeant or whoever um, that there's been a robbery and there's two suspects. One happens to be black, one is white. You go in with another partner and interview the uh, one of them who happens to be the black one. And um, your partner is virtual and he becomes really aggressive, almost to the point of violence, with the suspect. So that's the first round. You're together with this virtual policeman who occasionally turns to you and asks you if you want to ask a question. And he does a kind of very violent interview with a suspect. That's phase one. In phase two, you are the suspect and you just re-experience everything that happened. As I said before, everything that you do is recorded. So we play back everything that happens, but now you're embodied as the suspect and you not only see this violent virtual policeman attacking you, but you see what your own response was, which is basically to acquiesce in it and to do nothing. That's one condition of the experiment. The other condition is everything is the same but you see the interview from outside. You look through a window, you're not embodied or anything like that. You just see it all from the outside. Then a few weeks later, we bring them back and they go into a virtual cafe and uh, African-American man, uh, and you're with that violent police partner who's just having a small talk with him, like, did you go to the game last night and all this kind of stuff. And then a, an African-American man walks in and immediately your violent partner starts attacking him to the point of even pulling out a gun, accusing him of wanting to steal a woman's handbag and all kinds of things like that. So our question was, would you intervene depending on what experience you'd had a few weeks earlier? And what we found is that those who'd been embodied in as the victim were far more likely to intervene in the cafe scenario than those who just saw everything from the outside, from looking through a window into the interrogation room. Mm -hmm. So that was the one with the police. It worked really well. And then uh, we did a similar thing, very similar paradigm, almost the same with sexual harassment with a group of guys. They're attacking a woman and then you are the woman or you see it from a third person perspective. Then a week later, you have an experience where you see men again attacking a woman. And do you intervene or not? Mm -hmm. And you do if previously you'd experienced being the woman. So I'm very interested to follow up this paradigm in other areas of application. Not exactly psychiatry, but it's kind of related. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I've heard of the term Proteus effect. Would you say that's part of that construct of? Well, well the Proteus effect is the type of body I inhabit can affect my behaviors. Mm -hmm. This, yeah, of course, it includes that because I'm embodied as a police officer. Well, they are police officers, really were police officers. In this one, it's not so much the embodiment. Mm -hmm. Well, then they're embodied as the victim. So it's not so much the embodiment, though, that's important, mm -hmm. the embodied perspective from two different viewpoints, you're, as a policeman and as a suspect. Mm -hmm. What's more important is the whole situation. The thing I really like about this is that, of course, there's police and other people, they have all kinds of trainings and they go to lectures and they learn it's very bad and they're told it's wrong and mm -hmm. so on. But here we don't tell them anything. We don't tell them it's bad to be aggressive. They just have an experience. And the experience changes them in some way. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no lecturing or telling them what they should think or shouldn't think. 
it's just based on experience implicit yeah. implicit learning In, yes exactly yeah mm, got it okay yeah i think it's amazing that you can put together these ethical scenarios and like law enforcement scenarios that might be impossible to create that experience in real life for the subjects, but being able to do that in virtual reality. And I, you know, you talked about that in the beginning, but I think this like paradigm does exemplify how you can do that and put together these problems that teach subjects um, something so important about morality and ethicality, you know, empathy and important topics like that. Yeah. And also in real life, you'd have to hire actors, which is expensive. And then they have to do exactly the same for everyone, which is impossible. And they get tired and they have to stop to eat and everything. The virtual characters, they do anything, don't have to pay them. Yeah, it's odd. Yeah, you can actually include the participant being the victim as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I love this. Yeah. And also you're developing that through this diverse VR platform for for organizations yeah. right to help with implicit yeah that's the uh spin-off yeah i think that's phenomenal yeah but... yeah well what do you see as the the future in xr in 20 to 50 years do you see some things you're really excited about or are there any dangers you're concerned about in the development or yeah so i'll talk about the dangers first there's lots of talk about ethical issues related to virtual reality Like, do you confuse reality with virtual reality? What's the long-term effect? Can you use these techniques to make people biased in a negative way rather than changing their biases to be more pro-social? And there's many, many. But the problem is, is that most of that's based on speculation, including a couple of papers I've been involved in. And there's no real data. So we have got a project from the Spanish Ministry of Science which is explicitly designed to actually test empirically whether some of these dangers exist. Like, do people get confused between what happens in virtual reality and reality, take things they've learned from virtual reality, negative things, take them over into real life and so on. Like, if you've had a negative conversation with a virtual representation of someone you know, when you see the real person, Does that carry over? And then you can't help but think bad things about them. That's on the negative side. Basically, there's a lot of talk, but not very much data. Then in long term, I don't know about very long term, but one of the most exciting things, actually, during the lockdown, I had a Magic Leap device, um, which is augmented reality. And I started programming it to do some augmented reality. And what I found was really interesting that I managed to create an environment which scared me more than anything ever had in virtual reality, even though in virtual reality I could do the same. I mean, it's something very simple that relied on something that Magic Leap software already provided, which was that you see an elephant and it kind of goes up on its hind legs and does roaring, you know, making the sounds like Mm -hmm. elephant make. And I've seen this kind of thing in virtual reality. Yeah, it's a bit scary. But when the elephant was in my living room, which happens in in augmented reality, it was a whole different level. Mm -hmm. Somehow my brain doesn't, it sees this thing in my living room and it knows my living room is really there. And the effect it had on me was far more profound than anything I'd ever experienced in virtual reality. 
Wow. So I'm looking forward to developments in augmented reality where, I mean, the problem with devices today is the field of view is very narrow. Mm -hmm. um, it's not bright enough. You can't use it very well to obscure things in the real world. But that's all being developed. So I'm very looking forward to explore the capabilities of augmented reality, kind of much with the same philosophy I have for virtual reality, to do things that you you can't really do in reality, but you could do them in augmented reality. Mm. So this is what excites me uh, for the future once I have mm. access to devices which are good enough to do that. Well, I'm looking forward to the Apple device. A lot of talk about it, but mm -hmm. it's always coming next month, you know. Oh, yeah. Do you know what it's called or uh, when it's supposed to be out? The software was going to be called OS Real OS or OS Real. I can't remember. Okay. And the, the hardware, I don't know. There's only ever rumors about it. Yeah. Okay. But we know they've been working on it for many, many years with like hundreds of people. Yeah. So wow. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Are there any ethical concerns that you have about the development? Anything that we should be careful of? Yeah. Yes. Oh, so about the metaverse, I think everybody knows this. Mm -hmm. in, in the metaverse, it doesn't really exist in any real sense today, but imagine it did. Mm -hmm. We carry on a large part of our daily lives in the metaverse. This is could be great and release a lot of creativity, allow you to do things that you can't do very easily in real life, like have spaces where you meet people who are thousands of kilometers away and visit your psychotherapist, <laughs> uh, do shopping and yeah. et cetera, et cetera, all, all inside this virtual reality. Of course, we don't know the long-term effects of wearing head-mounted displays for many hours a day, but let's imagine that's all okay. So one of the things which is essential in virtual reality is head tracking and body movement. Uh, not only that, but of course, new devices are coming online immediately, which do eye tracking, facial expression tracking. It's really easy and it's going to happen. They'll be monitoring your skin conductance and your heart rate and maybe blood pressure and respiration. You know, in a few years, one device will encapsulate all of these things. You know, when I, when the device detects I've turned my head, it has to update the scene so that I'm looking at the right display. And uh, knowing my heart rate may be useful for all kinds of applications of biofeedback or neurofeedback or whatever. All this is really good. But imagine the data's kept by someone else who now knows what you were looking at knows your responses, mm -hmm. and also not just you, but millions of other people, and then apply machine learning to this to make predictive models about how you individually mm -hmm. and how people on the mass are going to respond to certain stimuli. Well, this is fantastic for advertisers. It's also probably fantastic for political manipulators and so on. So we've seen what happened with social media. So imagine that multiplied by 100 because it's really different to looking at a few images on the screen and a few videos and some text than it is to be in there and actually be doing this and have this huge multi-sensory data about every aspect of what you're doing plus knowing the stimuli that were associated with that data so this really has to be taken on board i, I know the companies like meta and so on they're considering this but it's a question whether commercial interests mm -hmm can be outweighed by ethical interest. And I imagine there'll have to be some kind of regulatory framework for this because this data is really valuable. Yeah, sounds like our society and our 
policy making, well, there'll be different groups that need to make these kinds of decisions. And yeah. Well, it's like the historian Yuval Harari. He was saying in this kind of system, I mean, he wasn't explicitly talking about the metaverse, but he was just talking about having your phone around you everyday life. For the first time in history, it's possible for authorities to know everything you're doing. So imagine you living in the metaverse, they can know everything you're doing. Mm -hmm. And this is a means of manipulation control far more than there was in the novel 1984. Mm-hmm. So that this kind of thing we have to watch out for. I know that the companies are being responsible and they want to ensure that this kind of thing doesn't happen. Yes, yes, it's here. We live in a kind of society where money matters. Yes. Dr. Slater, I'd love to hear, just speaking on like your thoughts about the future of XR, how you think young people like me can make an impactful change in the XR industry moving forward. Where do you think um, are key places, aspects of extended reality that are important to address and get involved in? Well, actually, I don't know an answer to that, but I know a kind of methodology. Uh, That's not the right word, but let me explain what I mean. So people like me, virtual reality, I started using in the 1990s. And for me, it's still new, even though I've been doing it all these years, it's still new. But people like you who grow up with it, nothing special, like my daughter, who's 14. To her, it's like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll go into virtual reality and try this. It's not like a big deal. And because it's something that will always have been with you, maybe not exactly the generation now, maybe in a few years' time, who will grow up with the metaverse and this kind of thing, it won't be anything special. And therefore, they'll have ideas that we can't have because we just haven't experienced it that way. So what I suspect is that people like yourself, and especially a bit later, who really do grow up with virtual and augmented reality as just a normal part of their lives, like cell phones are today, they'll have ideas that we'll never have because we've never been exposed. We've never had that history. So this is going to be really interesting. And I hope you come up with really novel ideas that I will never have because I kind of, for me, it's all still new, even though I've been doing it a long time. I think that's what makes the breakthroughs so exciting is that there's just constant evolution because at every time in its existence of extended reality, everyone just has ideas about ways that it can be applied. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to me, it's it's really amazing because if I just think a few years ago, we had to have a lab with fixed installed devices. The lab itself cost in the order of $50,000 and so on. And now... I'm just holding up a Meta Quest 2, and uh, it's cheaper than a smartphone. And I can do better things I can with this than I ever could with the really expensive devices and lab that we had just a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So it will become, I think, just like the cell phone, really diffused through society. But this is why we have to think very carefully about the effects it might have, because no one ever realized that having cell phones mm-hmm. can lead to distortion of the outcome of an election or lead to people becoming violent and this kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a benefit to having multiple generations exploring this technology because you can see what has been done with other technology in the past that we've learned from and the newcomers that are exploring what to do with it. They can take all of that knowledge that 
the rest of us have learned and really utilize it Mm -hmm. in a way that's going to be beneficial for everyone, not necessarily detrimental. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Another area of very great interest is, I mean, not something I'm working on directly, but something that will be of interest in how this feeds into entertainment beyond games. What will be the equivalent of a movie in a few years' time in virtual reality? In a, in a normal movie, we're just uh, passive witnesses. But what happens to make use of virtual reality? Somehow you have to be in it. Yet nevertheless, someone's trying to tell a story, so you can't do an action that then changes the whole story, or maybe you can. Mm-hmm. So the application in the equivalent of movie making is going to be really interesting to see what kind of ideas yeah. people come up with. Yeah, new ways of storytelling. Yeah. Absolutely. Great. Well, anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? Um, No, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, this has been so wonderful. I think we could talk for hours. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much um, for sharing. You're welcome. Yeah, a very valuable insight and one of the legacies in the field and founders and what's happening in XR. And thank you again for your time. We we so appreciate it. And so that's it for episode of Psychiatry XR. And we hope you gained a new perspective on the use of extended reality in healthcare. And thank you for listening. This episode was brought to you by Psychiatry XR, the psychiatry podcast about immersive technology and mental health. And for more information about Psychiatry XR, please visit our website at psychiatryxr.com. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast and tune in again next month to hear from another guest about XR's use and psychiatric care. And you can join us monthly on Apple Podcasts, Twitter, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And Psychiatry XR was produced by Dr. Kim Bullock, Faiza Arshad, and Jessica Hagen. And please note that the podcast is distinct from Dr. Bullock's clinical teaching and research roles at Stanford University. The information provided is not medical advice and should not be considered or taken as replacement for medical advice. This episode was edited by David Bell and music and audio was produced by Austin Hagen. See you next time.